I wonder if many of you have um, had the experience of thinking you know about something and then realising that actually you'd gone off and taken the wrong tangent. A bit like myself and my siblings, uh, when we used to, as new immigrant children in this country, turn up at our school assembly each week and sing about our land abounding in nature strips. Made perfect sense to us because there was no nature strips in the land that we came from and this land was abounding in them. So why wouldn't you sing about them? We did that for about four years until we realised that we weren't singing the right words. Could be a song, could be a story or something else. You think you know what it's all about uh, and then you realise that actually you don't. Uh, take, for example, uh, this little book that I'm sure most of you are familiar with, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, interesting story. I'm not sure what you thought of it when you were a child. Um, but if I had to ask you what that book was about, how would you describe it? Many would describe it as a whole lot of nonsense. And in fact, its actual literary uh, category that it falls into is called uh, nonsense literature. So maybe if you thought it was nonsense, maybe you might be onto something. Some people would say, well, it's just a children's story. It's fiction, children's fiction. It's fantasy you know, about a girl who falls down a rabbit hole and comes out in another kind of world uh, with a lot of wacky characters. Still others have seen an underlying darker side to this story and they speak of a drug theme running through it. And they point to evidence that kind of sounds a bit convincing. Um, the whole story kind of has a, another, another world, different dimension kind of feel to it. Um, they talk about Alice drinking a potion and eating some magic mushroom and her state of reality being completely altered. Um, still others talk about the caterpillar and his, his hooker pipe that he smokes or that um, disturbing grin of the Cheshire cat. Many have sought to argue that there is a, an underlying disturbing side to this story. But how convinced would you be if I told you instead that much of this story is said to be inspired by mathematics? Have you ever seen mathematics in Alice in Wonderland? It's not exactly the first thing you think about when you think of Alice in Wonderland unless you take some time to walk around in the shoes of Lewis Carroll. You see, Lewis Carroll is his pen name. He was born Charles Ludwig Dodgson in 1832. And he was a great poet, a great writer, but he was also a mathematician. And by all accounts, he was quite a conservative mathematician based at Christchurch College in Oxford. Now, 19th century was not an easy time to be a conservative mathematician because there were many new ideas in mathematics being bandied about for the first time in the 19th century. 
And Dodgson, by all accounts, was one who liked his mathematics grounded in physical reality. He liked arguments and proof to be logical and rigorous. And he considered many of these concepts that were being bandied about at that time to be absurd. And so he protested in the way that he knew best. He took his protest in satire to his writing, to his literature. He took it to the world of children's literature, which is not a place you expect to find complex mathematical themes. Many of the most recognisable characters and most recognisable scenes in that story were not in the original story that Carol wrote to tell to a young girl called Alice and her siblings as he boated down the Thames with them. Take perhaps this best known scene from the story, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, where the Mad Hatter, the March Hare and the Dormouse are stuck in an ever-ending tea party as they move around the table in a circular motion in one plane looking for a clean cup to use. Now when Alice makes inquiries, as it turns out, there is a fourth guest to the tea party, but he hasn't showed up. He evidently has had a falling out with the Mad Hatter, and so he isn't coming to the party. And as it turns out, his name is Time. And without his presence, the clocks won't move past six o'clock, and so they're all stuck in perpetual motion, going around and around the table in a single plane. What's that got to do with mathematics, you might ask? Well, in this scene, Dodson is said to be having a go at the Irish mathematician, William Rowan Hamilton, and his new coordinate system called Quaternions. This is a mathematical system which he claims described rotation in three dimensions. Now, there were four terms used to describe this rotation in three dimensions. Three of those terms related to space. The last one he proposed was time. And without that critical fourth component, the other three would just keep rotating around and around in one plane, like those characters moving at the tea party. Dodson obviously had a problem with this theory. He thought it was absurd, and so he took it to his literature in satire. What about this scene? Another well-known scene from the book where Alice finds herself inside a small house and there she meets the Duchess and the Duchess's baby. She holds the baby and as she holds the baby, it transforms into a pig or a piglet. Now in this scene, Lewis Carroll is said to be satirising the work of a French mathematician, Jean-Victor Poncelet. He proposed that geometric figures underwent continuous transformation. I'm trying to make this as simple as possible, but if you want to read up on it, check out The New Scientist from 2009 or lots of other articles that have been written about it. But basically, he said that geometric figures underwent continuous transformation, or when they underwent continuous transformation. 
they would retain some of the properties of the original. But these might not be physically evident. And they would be possible only through the use of imaginary numbers, like the square root of negative numbers, numbers like that. So, for example, if you have two shapes, two circles, and they're overlapping, he proposed you can pick or calculate the points at which they overlap. And if you continue to pull those circles apart, you can continue to calculate the points at which they overlap. What was new about his theory was that he proposed that when they're no longer overlapping, you can continue to calculate those points at which they overlap as long as you use imaginary numbers. Now, you can imagine what a conservative mathematician thought of that kind of theory. He thought it was as ridiculous as a little baby transforming into a pig before your very eyes, yet retaining many of the features of that original baby. He thought it was ridiculous and he found it offensive and so he took it to his literature to satirise it. Now, there are many, many examples through the book. I've just given you two and it is a fascinating subject to read up on. But as a child, I didn't really like this story. I thought it was nonsense. Um, but as an adult, I'm blown away by the mind of a man who can be a great in mathematics and a great in literature and can combine the two together so cleverly. Why am I telling you all this? I am telling you this because it is easy for us to think we know all about whatever point a story is trying to make. But if we haven't walked around in the shoes of the one who's telling or writing the story, we can easily head down the wrong tangent. Many of us just think it's nonsense. And there's another subset in the community who think it's about drugs in society. Um, but Carol would tell you something different, maybe, if he was here today. And the parable that we're about to work through suffers in much the same way. We Christians are often so caught up in the notion of hellfire that that's what we see in this parable. We try and use this parable to teach us about what hell and heaven are like. And in doing so, we don't hear anything else. And I think we try and push it beyond the limits of what was intended for it. So before we read the parable, we need to at least briefly walk a little while in Jesus' sandals. Now, our parable for today is the last in a group of five parables that have been placed together in the Gospel of Luke. Now, did Jesus tell them straight after one another, one, two, three, four, five? We don't know for sure. We do know that he told the first three straight after one another because they have linking words that join them up as three consecutive parables. But the last two, the parable of the shrewd manager that Pastor Bruce spoke about last week, and this one here, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that if Jesus didn't tell them altogether, the gospel writer Luke saw fit to place them together as a group of five in his gospel. And you might recall the context for the telling of those first three parables. Do you remember it was about the Pharisees 
and the teachers of the law having a real problem with Jesus welcoming and even eating with tax collectors and sinners. You might remember they were muttering about that and so Jesus told them the three stories about lost things and the great joy that there is in finding them. And in the last of those three parables he spoke about or he introduced a character, the older son, uh, who reflected that attitude that the Pharisees had. Then at the conclusion of last week's parable, the parable of the shrewd manager, um, we read that the Pharisees loved money and they sneered at Jesus for these parables that he was telling them. And Jesus explains to them that God knows their heart and that what is valued among men is not what is valued by God. It's not what is valued in this kingdom of God. So these first four parables, they're all linked together by this theme of the attitude of the Pharisees and the heart of God, the notion of God's heart. And after those, those four, there follows a very brief teaching about the relationship of the law and the prophets to this kingdom of God. And then we have our parable today. And it is linked to the one behind it because it is introduced by Jesus with the very same words. There was a rich man. And I think as you go through it, we'll, you'll see here how in this concluding parable that kind of brings the other four all together, Jesus is turning up the heat here on these Pharisees. So here we go. We're going to uh, have a look at the rich man and Lazarus and we're going to read it as we go rather than reading right through the whole thing. So if you've got Bibles, we're looking at Luke 16 and we're going to start from verse 19. So there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. I'm reading from the ESV here. So this is the first character that Jesus introduces into this parable. He's described as the rich man dressed in purple and fine linen. Everything that is used to describe this man serves to illustrate the type of lifestyle he lived. So in the day, fine linen, which were the undergarments that he wore, would have been made from Egyptian flax. Now the value of Egyptian flax in that culture was up there with gold. So even in his undergarments, this man is screaming out something. His overgarments, they're coloured purple. Now purple was a colour that only the most wealthy of the wealthy could afford because the dye that was used to make the purple came from a type of shellfish and so to extract it from the shellfish, make it into a dye and then dye the cloth was a horribly expensive process. Um, and so in wearing purple, it's kind of like wearing a very expensive brand today. You're making a statement when you're wearing a purple colour back in that culture. Every day, says our scripture, this man feasted sumptuously. Now the context there is given in one of our previous parables. Remember the fuss that was made um, by the older son when the father wanted to kill the fatted calf when the prodigal son had returned. Great fuss was made by him because the father was killing the fatted calf to throw a feast. For most families, 
that was a huge big deal. It was something he might have done once a year or maybe even once in a lifetime. But this man, he can do it every day. Every day he can feast sumptuously. Now, every day also tells us some other things about him because every day includes the Sabbath. And every day includes those special days of prayer and fasting that were on the Jewish calendar. Every day this man is feasting sumptuously. Life for him was one great, big, long quest of self-indulgence. So here comes our second character. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here is Lazarus, and Lazarus is unique in all the parables as he's the only person that is ever named. So that tells you something about God's heart for people who are in that state that Lazarus was in. His name actually means God is my help. And in the Bible, names often speak of the character of the person or the destiny that they're going to have. And you'll see that that's the case as we follow this parable through. Now this man, Lazarus, he's flung at the gates of the rich man. And that's the sense of the words there that are translated laid. He wasn't gently laid at the gate. He was flung like you would lay a fishing net on the water. Every day he's flung at the gates of this man, waiting for the scraps to be thrown out in the street for the dogs. Now he's desperate, almost certainly he's suffering from leprosy. And he's in such a weakened state that he's not even able to shoo the dogs away and stop them from licking at his sores. So there couldn't be a greater contrast than what we have here. We've got one man who's rich, powerful and self-indulgent, the other who is poor, powerless and completely dependent on others for his survival. He's waiting there for the scraps to be tossed out. So what happened to these two? Very simply, what happened to them was what happens to everybody. Eventually, they died. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Some versions say Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. So the poor man, Lazarus, died, and we're not told what happened to his body, uh, but we can guess, and no explanation really would have been needed for the first hearers of this parable. Uh, a man with leprosy, a beggar, he would have been flown, flung outside the city walls on the burning rubbish heap that was out there. But the rich man, we're told, was buried. For him, there would have been much wailing and mourning, probably a funeral procession, and he would have been buried in a tomb carved out of rock. And then all of a sudden, we're ushered into this place called Hades, which is a realm beyond the grave. 
And there a stunning reversal of fortune takes place. For here is Lazarus by Abraham's side, and the rich man is in torment. And we need to pause for a minute here to think about what is going on here in this story, because there's a lot going on at this point in the story. Jesus is drawing on elements here that his listeners would have been very familiar with, and we're not very familiar with them. So we need to do a little bit of work to think about what's happening here. So this notion of Abraham's side or his bosom was a Jewish spin on a Babylonian concept of the afterlife. So the Babylonians believed that there was one afterlife, but it had two regions, one where the righteous went, one where the unrighteous went, or the good and the bad. Now, of course, the Jews spent a lot of time in Babylon, and so they kind of adopted this belief and made it their own. And they began referring to Abraham's bosom as the place that the righteous Jews went to after they died. And the Babylonian Talmud, some of the Jewish writings, contain these thoughts and references to this concept. Hades is also a borrowed concept. This is a concept borrowed from the Greeks. It's part of Greek mythology. It referred to the underworld. And Hades is also the name of a Greek god who was uh, said to be in charge of the underworld. This is not a word that Jesus uses often. More frequently, he uses the word Gehenna to talk about the concept of, of hell. In fact, nowhere else does Jesus use the word Hades to describe the fate of an individual person. Sometimes he uses it to talk about cities or nations, but not of an individual person. Jesus is using these ideas here not so much because they're literally correct, but because they conjure up in his listeners' minds something that they're familiar with, that they can relate to and grasp hold of in this part of the story. He's using these concepts of Abraham's bosom and of Hades in much the same way as I might say I was flat out last week. It conjures up something in your mind. You know that I was busy, not that I was lying flat on the road. So this rich man is described as being in torment, and this is perhaps the most interesting word in the whole um, parable. It's used only three times in the Bible, this particular word to describe torment. Two of them are in this passage, so two out of three. What it actually refers to is a touchstone. Now, a touchstone was a stone that they used to use back then to determine the purity of metals. So when someone wanted to trade a metal, they would bring it to the merchant, the merchant would bring out the touchstone, and they would scrape the metal on the stone. And the merchant would know which particular colours are for silver or gold or whatever other metals they were trading. And if there were impurities or other alloys in those metals, it would come out a different colour, maybe green or pink or whatever. There'd be a tinge 
that was off colour to what it was supposed to be. That's the underlying meaning of this word here that's uh, translated as torment. So why is the rich man in torment? He's in torment because his true character has been revealed for what it is. There's no more pretending for him. The justice of God has revealed him and all of his impurities have been exposed. So he looks up and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And this is where we start to run into some real trouble if we take everything in this account literally as a literal teaching about heaven and hell. Because whose view of heaven would include the ability to watch people in torment, people that you know in hell? I don't see how that could be. Verse 24, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So we see here that even in his torment, the rich man still thinks that he can boss Lazarus around. And the rich man still refuses to speak directly to Lazarus. He speaks only to him through Abraham. Now, if you imagine yourself at this point, standing maybe out in the middle of summer on some hot bitumen, you know, on those days where the heat shimmers off the road, maybe a 45-degree day, you're standing out there, sweat dripping off you, how much benefit is a single drip of water going to be in cooling you in those sort of circumstances? If this was a literal rendering here, the rich man would be calling for a fire hose, not for a single drop of water. Jesus is using hyperbole here to make his point. So Abraham's response to his first request is tender but firm, verses 25 to 26. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to and none may cross from there to us and so all of a sudden any thought of relief in the future any thought that this might be a short-term thing is kind of evaporated from the rich man's understanding. The rich man is faced with the very stark reality that this is his present and it is his future, his forever future. And this kind of tragic epiphany drives him to what might be his first selfless thought in a very long time. Suddenly, he remembers, my brothers, my five brothers. Someone needs to go and tell them so that they don't end up like this. Now, that obviously tells you what he thinks of his brothers. They're exactly the same as him. Self-indulgent, would step over a beggar to get inside. And he assumes that they're going to the same place that he is. 
Abraham refuses. Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, the law and the prophets, which we know of as our, most of our Old Testament, they clearly lay out God's heart for the poor and the vulnerable. The great chasm that this man finds between himself and God was a chasm of his own making. By his actions, he had strayed further and further away from the heart of God. This rich man was not condemned because he was rich any more than Lazarus was comforted because he was poor. After all, Abraham was rich and he's right there with Lazarus. This rich man was not condemned because he failed to alleviate poverty from the world. He was condemned because he had no compassion for the one that he had to step around every time he got into his gate. The very fact that he could walk past this man or ride past in a carriage, whatever he did, I don't know, every day and feel absolutely nothing and do nothing to help him shows him to be in exactly the same place as that older son in the parable of the lost son. He's made himself distant from the heart of the father without even leaving home. And in life, that distance that he experienced between himself and God didn't really seem to bother him at all. He didn't give it a second thought. But in the afterlife, he would feel it as a great impassable chasm of separation between himself and God and a chasm of God's justice that would be brought down on him. And you can sense the desperation in his reply No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Which is so ironic, because shortly after this event, Jesus would raise someone from the dead. His name was Lazarus, not the same guy as is in this story, but it's quite remarkable that Jesus would use that name in the story here. And then after that, Jesus himself would come back to the dead, from the dead to them. And still many of them would not believe. So the parable concludes with Abraham speaking some words which sound very much like the words of God himself. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Whether or not Jesus spoke these last two parables in this group of five straight after the first three, we'll never know. But if he didn't, I believe that Luke was very careful in placing them together in his gospel and very intentional about the way he has ordered them because there is this ongoing constant contrast and build up across the first four stories about the heart of the father and the attitude of the Pharisees. And the final parable in this group of five draws it all together in a conclusion which demonstrates the consequences of a heart 
that is far from the Father. Eternal, irreversible separation from him in the afterlife. This parable doesn't teach us the finer details about what heaven and hell are like, nor does it teach us that rich people will be condemned and poor people will be comforted. And I think if we try and push it for details like that, we are trying to push it beyond what it was intended for. What this parable does very clearly teach us is that there are only two destinations in the afterlife. And once you get to your destination, there's no going back and there's no crossing between the two. Once you arrive there, that's it. You stay there forever. And forever, in comparison to the eternity of a human lifespan, it's enormous. You know, a human lifespan might be about this much and the rest of it is enormous. And yet how much effort and energy do we put into our own comforts, our own indulgence and our own self-will in that little part of life and give hardly a thought to the rest of it? All of us need to be sure today where our final destination would be because today could be the last day you have here on earth. None of us know. And if that happens while you're living separated from the Father, then you will live like that forever, separated completely from the Father in an even deeper chasm separated from him for all eternity. It is expected that the children of God, those who have put their faith in Jesus, will share the Father's heart. And the state of our hearts will be revealed in the way that we treat others, but especially in the way that we treat those in need, the poor and the vulnerable in society. And that's essentially what James meant when he says that faith without works is dead. Your faith, the state of your heart, will be obvious. It'll be seen in how you treat others. So if today you know that some distance has built up between you and our Father God, if you know that you aren't sharing his heart for the poor and the vulnerable, if you know that you've essentially been living a fairly selfish life, then make sure you don't let the rich man's story become your story. Be like that first son, the lost son, in the parable that we did a couple of weeks ago, who humbles himself before the father and begins to take steps to make that journey home. Take initiative to close whatever gap has arisen between you because the Father is waiting for you. He will always be waiting. While life still exists here on earth like this, he will always be waiting to welcome his children home. Will you join me in prayer? We thank you, Father, for calling us to yourself 
Father, we ask that you would forgive us when we have put distance between your heart and ours by our selfish ways. We want to share your heart, Father God. Help us to daily be more like Jesus. Amen.